afternoon, if you are uh, sitting with your family uh, at home, tell them you love them. Tell them happy Palm Sunday. And uh, while you're doing that, why don't you turn your Bible to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 21. We are this morning celebrating Palm Sunday. What is Palm Sunday, you ask? Palm Sunday is just a memory, a memory of the time that Jesus marched into Jerusalem on a donkey. Uh, And this is, it's special, it's important because Jesus is entering into the holy city, Jerusalem, as their Messiah now. For Jesus' life ministry, throughout his life ministry, he was constantly having to tell people and his disciples not to talk about him. He would say, tell, he would do a miracle and he would tell people, don't, look, don't tell anybody of what you've seen or of what I've done. And the reason why he did that was because he didn't want people to get super excited and, and, and wild about his presence being there at the time because it wasn't the opportune time yet for him. Constantly throughout the Gospels, you see Jesus telling his disciples, not yet, a little while, a little while. The hour has not come. My hour has not come. And then as you progress through the account of Jesus' life, you start to see him telling his disciples, the hour is near. The hour is at hand. And then eventually he ends up to the moment where he says, my hour has come. And that hour that he's referring to It's building up to his crucifixion, to when he would take on the sins of the entire world, every human being that's ever lived. He would die for their sins. And we have that glorious salvation offered to us where we simply just believe in faith and accept him. So now, as Jesus is entering into Jerusalem, this is, he's coming in, in peace. He's coming in this victorious march because he knows what he's going to. However, there's also a, a very sad truth about his march into Jerusalem. As we study the, this chapter, you're going to see how people loved Jesus and how they, they worshipped him in, in this march. But those same people would end up turning their backs on him and they would end up crucifying him as a, a large group of people. And Jesus knew this. Jesus was going full speed to his call which was to die on the cross. And he wasn't going to let death scare him away. He wasn't going to let Satan scare him away from this. Even himself, uh, later this week, we'll we'll do a study on, on Jesus in the garden. But when it came down to it, when he was there in the garden, he said, God, Father, if there's any other way that salvation can be brought to these people, let it be done. He said, but not my will, God, but your will. So as Jesus is entering into Jerusalem now, 
he has in his mind the crucifixion. It's there, and he knows it. But on Palm Sunday, he allowed the people and, and he accepted their worship because he was worthy of it. And now is the time. So in, in Matthew's gospel, beginning with verse, 20, uh, verse 1 of chapter 21, I'm reading out of the New King James Version, by the way. I know some of you guys have been uh, hearing me read out of the NLT recently. And that was simply because I study with different versions of the Bible at times. And recently I used the wrong set of notes. And I was like, oh, wow. However, uh, it's no, not a big deal. We're just going to read through the New King James Version this morning. So in Matthew chapter 21, beginning with verse 1, it says, Now when they drew near Jerusalem and came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples. I would encourage you guys, if you ever, for some reason, get an opportunity to visit Jerusalem, to visit Israel, please do so. Uh, it, it's, it's a very amazing and beautiful city. And then you're going to see the Bible come to life. A lot of churches will host this. So I encourage people all the time, save up, save your pennies, save your dimes, because you want, you want to be able to see the Bible come to life, go to Israel. Uh, you don't have to, however. I, know, I understand that some people who, who can't, especially right now, don't go out <laughs> on any planes right now. But it, it is a blessing. And in verse one, he's talking about how they went, they drew near to Jerusalem. Now keep in mind, whenever you're going to Jerusalem, you're going up to Jerusalem. Because Jerusalem sits on a hill. So whether it's north, south, east, or west that you're coming from, you're going to be going up to Jerusalem. And as you're going up to Jerusalem, perhaps you're coming from the desert area near the Dead Sea. And it's interesting how Israel's geography is. See, Israel's geography has like all, all types of, of seasons, all types of weathers, and from the desert being dry and barren all the way up to this lush forest. Um, so when you're in the desert, near the Dead Sea, uh, you're going to be going up and you're going to go through the mountains and then you're going to come upon this hill, this, this big hill, and you're going to see all these rock cities on it, this house, these houses. What's interesting about the Dead Sea, it is 1,388 feet below sea level. And the Mount of Olives, it's actually 2,710 feet above sea level. Now, in Israel, everything, it sounds much bigger than it really is. And here's why. They call it the Dead Sea, but it's really like a big lake. They call it the Mount of Olives, and it's really just a big hill. It's not a the huge mountain. And you're going to notice that as you come across these landmarks throughout the Bible, the, if you ever get to see it, it's, it's usually smaller than what it sounds like. Now notice as they're going up to Jerusalem, Jesus, note, he, he gets two of his disciples. He says, you two, I'm going to send you guys. He wants them to go to the village opposite of them. And I, I did note that he's sending two disciples, not just one, but two. And why? That's because two is better than one. 
you maybe you've heard the saying, uh, the phrase, if you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go far, go together. In Ecclesiastes chapter four, verses nine through 12, you don't need to turn there. I'm just going to read this verse to you. It talks about the value of a friend. It says this in Ecclesiastes chapter four, verse nine, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, one will lift up his companion. But woe to him who is alone when he falls, for he has no one to help him up. Again, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? Though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him. And a threefold cord is not quickly broken. So this is the value of fellowship. And it's something that is super important to a believer's life. You see, as you're growing in your walk, in your Christianity, we need to have brothers and sisters in the Lord to be able to come alongside of us and point us back to God. Because we can go off in our, our thinking we could be hurting spiritually, physically. And it's good to have a Christian brother or sister there who, who can come help you. This verse, it's also speaking even about uh, a marriage. It's, it's so important that a pastor has a wife. It's, it's a huge deal in that ministry. Uh, for in Paul's epistles, and speaking to Timothy and, and Titus, one of the qualifications of a, of a deacon was that he be a husband of one wife. And why? Because it, it protects the pastor. It brings accountability in the pastor's life. And then I'm sure there's going to be a bunch of trials that go along with having that wife where it's going to mold and shape the pastor's heart. And, and the pastor is then going to be able to fulfill the command that God's given them to be fruitful and multiply. So then he's going to have his soldiers, men and women of Christ brought up after him and they could send them out. So it does kind of refer to, to I, I, I see how marriage is, is good. And it's, notice at the end of, of uh, the verse I read, it said a threefold cord is not quickly broken. I see that threefold cord. You have those two companions, the husband, the wife, and then the third, that's God. That's Jesus in the midst of that marriage, in the midst of even a fellowship of brotherhood. It's not quickly broken. So I encourage you guys to reach out to people right now. Have conversations with people about the Lord. It's, it's good to have fun and, and fellowship, um, and it's good to, to talk about whatever you guys want to talk about when in your, there's love there. But bring Jesus into the conversation. Use his name in conversation. Bringing it up constantly uh, throughout your... Challenge yourself to try to bring up Jesus' name in conversation with people you don't even know. So it's valuable to have people who are with you, especially when you're doing ministry. And that's what Jesus does. He sends these two out to go uh, on this mission. Now in verse 2, of Matthew chapter 21, verse 2. It says, saying to them, go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied 
and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. So this is the command now. He says, okay, look, I want you to go to the village opposite, and you're going to find the donkey and her kid donkey there. And, you know, these disciples, they didn't know or have any idea what was going to be in the next town. It wasn't planned out for them. Jesus just told them, hey, go, and this is what you're going to find. And that's because Jesus knows everything. And so now they're, maybe they're like, okay, well, you know what? We've seen Jesus do the miracles, so let's just go. Let's just go in faith. Without having seen the promise yet, they're going out in faith. And in our life, when sometimes Jesus is going to call us to, to do things, and we don't see everything lined up right away. We don't see the, maybe the finances. Maybe we, we, don't, we don't see the people there yet. We don't, we don't see all the parts in play yet. And we could be fearful and doubtful of God's working in this. But when he's called you to do something, one of the hugest lessons I've always learned from Pastor Chuck and Pastor Rawl is where God guides, God provides. And it's true. And sometimes we're, we're trying to do these missions and these uh, ventures, and God's not providing. That might be a, a very big indication that God is closing the door for you. And you have to be willing and be okay with God shutting the door. Uh, again, another Chuckism is let things die a natural death. Meaning referring to, to, advent, uh, to works and ministries and, and things that where you're trying to keep it alive and you're trying to maintain it. Yet it's falling apart and you don't have the funds, you don't have the provision there. Just let it go. God knows, God's in control, and he might have a whole other plan for you. You see, when you have to strive to obtain, you're going to have to strive to maintain. Now, there's times when God will anoint a person to work hard and to, and to struggle, but there's going to be peace in that person's life. So the God, God does provide peace, and he is providing so you have to have that walk, that relationship where you know when God is telling you, okay, stop, wait, go, move, take a step of faith. Like he did these disciples. Go to the village opposite, he said, and you're going to find the donkey and her coal. Now, again, they're going to drop everything that is in their way so that they could fulfill this mission I'm not sure who these disciples were, but maybe it was the ones he originally called uh, early on in his ministry, the 12 disciples. I'm reminded of, of when Jesus started to bring his disciples near to him. You see, for, for close to 30 years, Jesus didn't start public ministry. We really don't know too much about Jesus' life before he, he became around 30 years old. There's a couple stories about his childhood, but that's it. And then there's just silence. Where who, What was Jesus doing in all that time? What, what type of lifestyle did he live? We don't know. And was he getting ready and being prepared? He, of course he was, but was he getting more excited about what God was about to do in his public ministry? 
And now that he is beginning his public ministry, I, I'm remembering when Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee. And first he sees Peter and his brother Andrew. And they're there with their fishnets because they were fishermen. And he tells them, hey, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. So they drop their nets immediately and they go to follow Jesus. Again, later on, he, he's again walking and he, and he sees James and John, the sons of Zebedee, the sons of thunder. And they're there with their father in a boat, mending nets, same thing, fishermen. And he tells them, hey, James, John, follow me. So they drop their nets, they leave the boat, they leave their dad, and they go follow Jesus. See, when Jesus is calling you, everything has to be let go of. We cannot not hold on to anything so tightly that when Jesus asks that thing from us, that we can't let it go. This is the death to self. Now, the fact that these guys left their occupation, left their family to go follow Jesus, it wasn't because they were going to chase some religious pursuit. It wasn't because they were trying to become smarter or chase some sort of academic success. They're not even chasing success in their life anymore at this point when they drop their nets. Because success was right there in the boat with them, with the fish, with the money, with their father, with their family. But they were leaving that behind. Why? Because simply the fact that it was Jesus who was calling them. No one else can do that. Simply the fact that it was the God-man who was calling them into a deeper relationship with them now. That was the effect, that was the power of Christ in people's lives and still today. Where when he calls us, we have to let go of everything and fully just follow him. Now, along with that, that doesn't mean that Jesus is going to call you to, to quit your job and to go live on the mountains of Jerusalem like a monk. He's not going to call you to do that. He's going to naturally allow you to grow where he's placed you. He's going to let, let you uh, learn his voice and see what he's called you to do. Now, of course, if you're in a, in a place of sin, yeah, he's definitely calling you out of that. He definitely wants you to repent from sin and turn to him. Because true salvation has evidence of repentance. I'm not one, I can't look at people and judge just by looking at them like, oh, that person is saved. I can't know. Only God is judged. However, I can make a pretty good assumption based on the fruit of their life. There's going to be evidence that the Holy Spirit is in them. There's going to be evidence, the fruits of their, of their work, of what they're doing. When I say the fruits, I mean their actions, their behavior, their character, what they're doing with their life, their heart. That's going to be evidence of, is that person walking with Jesus? Does that person have salvation? So now, God is calling his church today. He's calling us to follow him wholeheartedly, to leave everything behind. And it's always been that call. 
but we have an opportunity every day to take it. I, I remember when I felt the call of God in my life, and I honestly didn't, didn't believe it right away. I, it, it was something I had to take a step of faith into. I'm reminded of Peter walking on water. Peter, one of those guys who was called, he left his nets. And then Jesus, he comes to the disciples one day during a storm. They're on a boat. Jesus isn't there. But all of a sudden, Jesus, they see him walking on the water towards the boat. And they're all afraid. They're like, what is that? Is that a ghost? What, what, how, what is this thing walking on the water? And he's getting close and they realize it's Jesus. And Peter realizes that's Jesus. So Peter says, Jesus, if that's you, call me to walk out to you on the water and I'll go out to you. So Jesus says, come out out, Peter. Come on. And then Peter's like, okay. Like he probably was about to take that step off the boat and into the water or onto the water. And maybe Peter was half-hearted. Maybe, who knows? Maybe he was like, I don't know, even know if this is going to work, but I know that's Jesus calling me. And then Peter began to walk on the water. And he's going, and he's taking step by step. And he's walking to Jesus, and he has his eyes on Jesus. And then suddenly he begins to look at all the waves and all the storm and all the scariness of the ocean, of the sea. And he begins to sink in the water. And he cries out, Lord, save me. And Jesus quickly just picks him up grabs him out of the water. And he says, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? And that happens in our life where when we have our eyes on Jesus, we're able to be victorious. But when we get our eyes on the situation and on the trials in our life only, and when we focus on the evil and on the scariness of, of this world, then we start to sink. So just cry out, Lord, save me. And that was me. I remember when I, I was going to take that step of faith into accepting Jesus as my Savior. I was scared. I, I didn't know if it was going to work. I, and I was like, okay, God, I, I was praying for the first time. God, if, I don't know if this is going to work, but I got nothing else to lose right now. So I'm going to take a step of faith. And part of me was doubtful, but I, I took that step. And once I took that step, I realized this is real, that Jesus is real, that he can change my life. He could change my desires. He could give me a new life. And I was able to then begin to walk with Jesus. So this is the call that God places on people's lives. This is why Jesus was able to send these disciples and they were able to go out to a place they don't know what's going on over there and have faith and believe that what Jesus said was going to happen is going to happen. And then again in verse 4, all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which is spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So this prophecy, it's, it's from Zachari Zachariah's book in Zechariah chapter 9 it's referring to the Messiah coming when it says tell the daughter of Zion 
the phrase daughter of Zion, it's a synonym for Israel. You see, Zion would be this sort of uh, mountaintop. For them, it'd be a hill, remember? But it'd be like this point, the highest point in Jerusalem. This was known as Zion. And it was a place of protection, a fortress, a place where they could look to 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 build their temple. So that's what it's referring to, uh, tell the daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible. So right here, Matthew is writing from Zechariah's book, saying, look, this is what Zechariah meant when he said this. He was referring to Jesus, the Messiah, and he's confirming prophecy in this work. There is one interesting prophecy concerning Jesus entering into Jerusalem. And it's found in Daniel's uh, prophecy, Daniel chapter 9. It says this. You don't need to turn there. I'm I'm just going to read this to you. Daniel chapter 9, verses 25. It says this. Now listen and understand. Seven sets of seven plus 62 sets of seven will pass from the time the command is given to rebuild Jerusalem until a ruler, the anointed one, comes. Jerusalem will be rebuilt with streets and strong defenses despite the perilous times. After this period of 62 sets of seven, the anointed one will be killed. Now, for uh, theologians and, and Bible studiers, Bible students who, who get really in-depth. This is basically an outline of when Jesus was going to come. You see, it said that from the time that the command was given to rebuild Jerusalem, which happened on March 14th, 445 BC, from Artaxerxes, to all these sets of seven years, that was when the Messiah was going to come. And if you do the math, and it's a pretty extensive math problem, given that their, their years were 360 days and ours are 365, so you have to do the math all crazy. But if you do the math correctly, you end up from the day that the command was given, which is March 14, 445 BC, to all those sets of seven years, you end up on April 6, 32 AD, which is Palm Sunday, when Jesus Christ rode into Jerusalem to the very day the Old Testament is confirming the New Testament down to the, to the, the very hour, which is, it's amazing. Why? Because even the Old Testament, we have scholars, secular scholars, who have found uh, these copies of the Old Testament that are very old before the time of Christ, And then you have those same secular scholars who are confirming what Jesus did when he did it. And it's showing me how true the word of God is, how our Bible is backed up by archaeology, by history, by God himself. And to me, it's it's comforting to know that I, I follow the true living God, that there is a reality to him. Now notice too, how Jesus enters in. It says in verse six, 
So the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. So the disciples, what do they show here by listening to this? They show that they're obedient. And they also show the discipline in their life just to follow. Without hesitation, they go. In Mark's gospel, in Mark chapter 11, verses 4 and 6, it, it kind of gives us a, a different insight of what happened after they left. Because the cool thing about the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all record the same accounts of Jesus, but some of them have different viewpoints. Matthew talks about what he saw. Um, John talks about what he saw. And you have, if you have different people witness the same event, they're going to have different views and different insights on what they thought was important. And it confirms really the, uh, the whole account. Someone might not mention as detailed as another person, but it gives us the whole picture. Now in Mark's gospel, in Mark chapter 11, verses 4 and 6, it says, So they went their way and found the colt tied to the door outside on the street, and they loosed it. But some of those who stood there said to them, What are you doing loosing the colt? And they spoke to them just as Jesus had commanded. So they let them go. So imagine this. Now it's time where the rubber meets the road, where their faith is really being put to the test. Because imagine Jesus is telling these guys, look, you're going to see this donkey that's tied up to this, near this door, and you're just going to grab it and take it. And if anybody tells you to stop, tell them it's for the Lord. Can you imagine what they were thinking as they were, it looked like they were stealing this donkey? They were taking it to be used of the Lord, but it's like, whoa. And now all of a sudden the people see them, they're like, hey, what are you doing? And they're just like, it's for the Lord. And this fear maybe came over them. And then the guy was like, okay. <laughs> he just knew that's the miraculous thing about it is maybe, who knows? God works on both sides a lot of time. If God is putting something in your heart involving another person, um, he's going to confirm it on both sides. You see, God doesn't just work on, on one end. Uh, sometimes people ha have... Uh, gone to other people and, and told me, hey, God's saying this about you and your life. And at that point, a lot of times that person can say, well, God hasn't told me that same thing. And, and you need to be careful when, when people are coming to you with, with what God is telling them to do. Um, really test it. Test the spirits. Now, God worked on both ends, and that's a beautiful thing. You see, when, when God has those divine appointments in your life, where God will be preparing someone for a work and having an, another person also getting prepared and ready to either receive that work or to join that work. And it's a beautiful thing when that divine appointment happens. So this is exactly what we see here. There was a divine appointment. Again, in, in verse 7, it says, They brought the donkey and the colt, laid their clothes on them, and set him on them. In Jesus' time, during the times of war, a lot of times a, a king or a general would come to a different city, a different nation, on a horse. And he would come to either conquer that city 
or come back home saying that he was the conqueror of that city. And, and it was this thing of war many times. But if a king would come on a donkey, it was a sign of peace. So Jesus, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, notice what he, he comes riding on into Jerusalem. Not a horse, but a donkey. One that had never been ridden on. One with, that the disciples put their clothes on so he could sit on it. And Jesus came in as the savior of the world. Remember, Jesus even said himself, look, I have not come to judge this world, but I've come to save it. So Jesus' first coming was in salvation of the world. He came with the mission to die for the sins of the entire world. Now, his second coming, however, is going to be much different because when Jesus left, the angels told the people who were watching Jesus ascend into heaven. This is after the resurrection. Jesus ascends into heaven. Everyone's looking up amazed. And these angels are there and they see these people looking up and they say, why do you guys look so shocked? The same way that he's going up, he's going to come back. Referring to Jesus coming back to the world for his second coming, but he's not going to come back with peace. He's going to come back as judge of the world. So right now, we're in this era of grace. We're in this grace period right now, and who knows when that second coming is going to be? Jesus said, no man knows the day or the hour. Now, when Christ returns, he's going to come back, not on a donkey, but on a white horse. In Revelation chapter 19, I'd encourage you guys, if you do have your Bibles open right now, go to Revelation chapter 19, beginning with verse 11. I want to read how Jesus is going to come back in his second coming. You see, when you study the attributes of God, one of those attributes is that God is just and that he's righteous. Well, that's two attributes. So here's the third one. He's also a good judge, a perfect judge. His judgment is one of his attributes. In verse 11 of Revelation chapter 19, it says, Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, he had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself, will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and the wrath of the almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. 
Wow. You see, when Jesus is going to come back, he's going to begin to rid the world of evil. You see, people ask, oh, how could God allow evil? How can a good God, a loving God, allow trial and these sicknesses and all these things and realize we live in a fallen world, plagued by sin, but also realize that God has a plan where he's going to one day end it all. This isn't the final stage of the universe. God, one day in Revelation 21, he's going to make a new heavens and a new earth. And all will be passed away. All that's old is going to be passed away. And he's going to create it new. So God, Jesus, the God-man, is going to reign his reign of righteousness on this earth. In that battle of Armageddon, If you go to Israel today, there's this valley of Megiddo, this huge valley. And it says, the Bible prophesies that when Jesus comes to fight in this battle of Armageddon, that the blood is going to be so deep of all the armies that are going to be trying to fight. That's going to be up to the horse's bridle. That's close to six feet. So when Jesus returns, he's going to come back in judgment. And those who are part of his church, the, the tribulation rapture saints, we're going to be returning with Christ in this battle. And I definitely want to be on his side because he's worthy of it. He's worthy of us being in his kingdom, in his army, because he wants us to be there. Not that we are worthy, not that we deserve it, but he is calling us to it. And if he's calling us to it, he's worthy of it. Back in Matthew chapter 21, verse 8. And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. So we have something here. It's an exciting worship celebration. It's paying honor to their king. You see, they're, they're throwing their clothes out, the palm trees, and there's a lot of palm trees in Israel. And they're throwing it on the floor so that Jesus can walk with his donkey on this without, without getting dirty. And it's this, it's this uh, symbol of honor and reverence for who he is, King of kings and Lord of lords. John the Baptist, even he felt unworthy enough to even take off Jesus' sandals, you remember. And that's what it is in, in our life, where worship is a celebration, not of ourselves, but of who God is. You see, worship, when I come up here and, and, and do songs, it's not for you guys, the listeners. It's for God. You guys actually get to join me in my response and your response to God. So we are responding to who he is and what he's done. We're responding all to to God and his goodness. That's what worship is. And that's what our life should be. Our life should be a life of worship. You see, a lot of times people might even complain. They'll go visit a church and be like, oh, well, I didn't like the worship. And it's like, no, the worship isn't for you to to like it. And I understand there are churches that have 
amazing worship where you, you'd like to be able to, to focus on, on God and they present worship in an awesome way where it allows you to focus on God. But make sure that the worship itself isn't why you're there. That you're not looking for the instruments, the music, that the music itself is not what you're worshiping. Make sure you're just worshiping God. And I encourage you guys to allow worship to be part of your life. Uh, there's a lot of uh, venues out there now where we could go turn our phones on and, and put worship music on and allow that to, to allow us to meditate on who God is. So many worship songs have impacted my life in, in times of, of trial and in times of need when I just wanted to be closer to the Lord. These worship songs have allowed me to focus my attention to God. So I encourage people to allow worship music to be part of your appetite. Where when you're driving on the road, you, you listen to Bible studies, you listen to worship music, and you have that, that relationship with God where it's not just, just uh, learning only just Bible study, but it's also allowing you to respond to God. You see, it's, it's both ways where God speaks to you and then you respond to him. And that's communication. That's prayer. So worship helps us to do that. And some of the, the deepest prayer sessions that we have is in a form of worship. The Bible teaches that sometimes when we're, we're, we're hurting so deeply that our spirit, it, it, it just voices these utterings, these groanings in the spirit that we don't even really understand what we're trying to say, but God does. God knows our hearts. He knows our minds. So allow that to, to take place part in your life so that you can grow so that you could get a clearer picture of who God is and now with this clearer picture then you can begin to show that love to other people to show it to God so they're having this huge worship celebration and it's exciting and then in verse 9 it says then the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out saying Hosanna to the son of David Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. So now they're singing out these worship songs. That Hosanna, what does it mean? It means save now. They're saying save now. Salvation is here now. Salvation is come. The son of David, a title of the Messiah. They're saying save now. Salvation is here with this son of David. You guys remember, David was given a promise from God himself. God promised David that from his descendants, from his line, the king would not leave the throne. That from his descendants, the Messiah would come. So David had that promise given to him. And right now, there is no descendants physically on the throne of David. And why is that? Because Jesus is on the throne in heaven. And one day, Jesus, the God-man, will come back to earth and be the king of this world. See, right now, the king of the world is a pseudo-king, Satan. He's the prince of the air, the Bible teaches us. When uh, Satan came to tempt Jesus... He said, look, I'm going to give you all these kingdoms, Jesus, if you would simply 
just bow down and worship me. And he showed them all the great kingdoms of the, of the world. And Jesus at that point didn't say, oh, Satan, those kingdoms are not yours. He simply said, no, it's better that I obey God the Father, not to test the Lord God. So right now, the ruler of this world is the prince of darkness. That's Satan. And he's got all his demons trying to work on us and trying to affect us, trying to to get us off track of what God's will for our life is. So that's why we need Christ in our lives to fight this battle. Now, there is going to be a day, though, when all that's going to end, the the evil is going to be dealt with, and Jesus will be that Lord of Lords, King of Kings of even the earth. Now, Jesus knew that this worship was going to be sadly turned into people screaming out his name, but not in worship but they would eventually turn around just less than a week later, Jesus would be put on trial and the multitudes would be there, probably many of them who were at this gathering. And instead of saying Hosanna in the highest, they'd be saying crucify him, crucify him. And I could imagine the betrayal that Jesus would have felt. I could imagine how heartbroken he would have been that people were rejecting him, that they were rejecting God the Father. So Jesus knew what he was looking at. He realized that this worship celebration was going to be soon met with, with darkness. He, right after this, the next day, uh, I'm not going to get too far ahead, um, but he would end up going into the temple and seeing the perversion and the darkness that entered even in the temple back in his time, where the priests at his time had begun to take the temple of God and use it as a place to make money. They used it as a place where people would come to offer their sacrifices to God. And they would see the people's sacrifice and they'd say, oh, your sacrifice isn't good enough. It's, it has a, a mark here or a blemish there. So we can't use that one, but we'll sell you our sacrifice that you can use this one. You could buy it, and then you could go sacrifice to the Lord your God. And people were doing this because they wanted to worship the Lord God. And the priests at that time were basically uh, taking all the money from the people on this. They were stealing from them. They were putting these high prices on being able to sacrifice. And it was sad. So Jesus, the next day after he has this march into Jerusalem, would enter into the temple and he began to clean house where it says that he made a cord of whip and he began to run around and he would chase out all the temple people and he, he would turn over their tables and say, my house is to be a house of prayer, not a den of thieves. So be careful out there because there's a lot of people who proclaim Christianity, but they're only in it for the money. They're only in it to build their kingdom. But ministry, it's for God. It's for the glory of God. You see, a a church ministry 
when you begin to see the ministers being served more than the people, there's a problem. Ministry is to serve God first and then the people, not the other way around. So even if you ever see me beginning to take all the service to myself, pull me aside and be like, hey, slap me. And be like, what? don't slap me. But tell me, hey, like, I thought ministry is, is supposed to be for God first and then the people. Now in verse 10, continuing on, it says, and when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved saying, who is this? So the multitude said, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. So now, even in the secular world, in Jesus' time, people are asking questions like, who, who is this guy? Why are all these people worshiping him? And they're asking about the nature of Christ. They're asking about the nature of the Messiah. And that should be happening in our lives. Now, we don't have Jesus on a parade right now, but people should be asking about Christ in our life based on our life. People should see us and and ask questions like, oh, hey, why do you do the things the way you do them? Why do you have so much joy during trial? How are you able to have peace during times of, of confusion? And this is a call to evangelism where we should be able to, to share the gospel with people, where our lives should be a written example of what the Bible is. And many Christians fail at this, but we could always grow. This is the call to evangelism. You see, we can't keep Jesus, the Holy Spirit, to ourselves. It'd be sin for us to take of this salvation that we have and not let people know that it's there, that it exists. Right now, there's the virus that is plaguing our world. Reminds me of like an Old Testament plague. And imagine if somebody gave you the vaccine for this virus and you used it on yourself and then you said, okay, and you had a a bunch extra and you're like, oh, but I'm just going to use it for myself. Do you know how wrong that would be? Now, in a more severe sense, there are people who are going to die and don't know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And us believers, we have that cure. We have the cure of salvation. So how important is it for us to not keep that to ourselves, but to share it to the world, to share it to our loved ones? Now, there's ways of doing this in a loving way. First, you lead by example with your life. Let your life be the gospel. Let your life speak the gospel. And then when you're given the opportunity, then you use your words. Why did Jesus come? He came for you and me, for the whole world. He entered into Jerusalem, heading, he's now going to the cross. His hour is coming, it's at hand. And he's going there because he loves you. 
And he's forgiven you of your sins if you just would accept it. And that's the, the, the life of walking with God where every day we get to be saved, where we say, God, forgive me of my sins today. And it's a constant. I'm not here before you saying that I have arrived. Everyone is a work in progress. But we allow Jesus, what he did on the cross, to be a reality in our hearts and in our lives every day. So this is now beginning the last week of Jesus' life. This is Palm Sunday. This is him entering now as the Messiah, publicly, fully, completely, allowing people to worship him. See, the fact that he allows people to worship him is pointing that he is God. But allowing people to worship him in this last week of Jesus' life. So this week, remember what Jesus did on the cross for us. I would encourage you guys uh, from this point on, just maybe keep reading through Matthew's gospel and see the accounts of of Jesus' last week here on this earth and on what he said to his disciples, how he prayed for the world, how he prayed for his disciples, how he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, the Last Supper. Uh, We're going to do some studies on this week later on, on, on Wednesday night. And then on Friday, so on, on Friday, keep in mind that uh, we, we are going to have that communion where we get to remember what Christ did on the cross for us. And then next week on Sunday, we're going to have our, our Easter study with worship and we remember that Christ rose from the grave, giving us a new life, giving us full salvation into heaven and the assurance, the promise that we are his children and that he has an eternity to live with him forever and ever. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's, um, let's close with some prayer. Heavenly Father, We thank you for this day. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your grace, for your mercy. I pray and I ask, Lord, that if there's anyone out there, Lord, who just needs to get right with you, Father, they would, Father, just fully and completely submit their lives to you. Begin, Lord God, just to have your Holy Spirit move and work in their hearts and their lives. Lord God, I pray, Father, that all of us believers, Lord God, that we would continually just seek after your perfect will in our life. Give us the strength, Lord, to turn from sin. Give us the strength to turn from fear and to have faith, Lord God, that you are going to do a work, Lord God, and that when you call us to do something, that you are going to be faithful to complete it, Lord God. May our lives, Lord God, be worshipful, Lord God. May we just be founded on your truth, on your word. I pray that you would use us this week in evangelism, use us to point people to God. As Lord God, we remember, Father, just who your son, Jesus Christ, is in our lives today. We love you, Father. 
We praise you and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.